I get to turn to Malachi chapter 1. Last book of the Old Testament. Find Matthew. Go back one more book. Malachi chapter 1. A couple weeks ago, while I was sharing, I mentioned that there are two types of people. And we have a tendency as human beings, we have a tendency to want to categorize people, put them in a slot, identify them by a, a trait or an issue or, or, or something like that. I mean, we've we just seen a really good example of that this week. Uh, some people are Nats fans. Some people are not. <laughs> okay, well, fortunately for those of you that are, uh, they won a great World Series, won all seven games, a lot of fun. We're going to have an opportunity to do this again this Tuesday. So, so let, me, let me just get on my soapbox for a minute here. You need to go vote. We're, 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 in, we're in a really rough time, and uh, I, I, don't, I don't care what party you vote for. Okay, so I'm not here to endorse one party, but I'm going to tell you what I do. I, I vote the issues, and I think the greatest issue we have before us in our time, and this is a generational thing, is the whole issue on abortion. And, you know, right you know, for a while there, it looked like things were going pretty bad, but, but there, a tide is starting to turn, and we're seeing some states overturn some of these things. So uh, I, I don't look, I've got to be honest with you, I don't look at party affiliation. I look at platform. And I will vote for the person who represents pro-life issues. And so uh, now, whether or not you agree with that, I'm not asking you to. I'm just asking you to go vote. Uh, so uh, I try to vote with my scriptures in one hand and my voting pen in the other hand. And so w we will have a tendency to identify people by who they vote for. Republicans, Democrats, uh, li liberals, uh, independents, so on and so forth. And so we have got all these different ways of categorizing people by their affiliation with a sport team, their affiliation with a political team, what state they come from, what country their grandfather was born in, and so on and so forth. And a couple weeks ago, I told you, there really only are two types of people in the world. Now, we all know that as believers in Jesus Christ. We, we kind of understand that concept. Uh, but we, we have nomenclature that sometimes isn't so polite. So, you know, we call ourselves believers, we call them unbelievers. We call ourselves the ones who are saved, we call them the ones who are lost. We call ourselves the ones who follow Jesus, and we call them the ones that are doomed. And I really do think we need to change our nomenclature. Because I don't think, I don't think our nomenclature is always very compassionate. Uh, and I, I think sometimes our nomenclature kind of puts us a cut above everybody else that doesn't believe like we do. So the truth of the matter is, when we all stand in judgment before our Father in heaven and have to have an answer for how we've lived, there's only going to be one question. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Is he your Savior? Have you repented from your sins and accepted him as the only Son of God? So, we have two groups of people, those who have Jesus and those who need Jesus. And if we can set our minds on those two distinctions, then our perception of the world will change. And whether or not we accept somebody or reject somebody is not going to be dependent on who they root for on the World Series or on the football iron or, or who they vote for. It will be on whether or not they have Jesus. And if they have Jesus, then they're our brother and sister in Christ. If they don't have Jesus, then they need him. 
So we have to understand that our mission field is everybody who doesn't know Jesus Christ. We don't have the option to exclude somebody because of some slot we've put them in. Either you have Jesus or you need him. And our efforts to relate to people have to be based on that distinction alone. So there are only two types of people. And we see that in our passage today. We're going to be in the first five verses of Malachi. In verses 1 and 2, we will see people who have gained God's favor. In verses 3 and 4, we will see people who have gained God's fury. And then in verse 5, we're going to get a peek at God's future for both groups. So the sermon is called My Messenger. This series is Malachi, the coming messenger. Uh, We are wrapping up the Old Testament, and here's how this is going to go. We've got a short series in Malachi. Uh, We will go through this book, and this is the last book in the Old Testament. It kind of sets us up for the New Testament, and uh, sometime just before Christmas, we will roll into the book of Luke. Uh, And we'll spend some time in the book of Luke, and we'll be able to open up Luke just as we hit the Christmas season. So that's the plan for it. Uh, If God approves of that schedule, then we'll be able to do that. So before we get into the verse, let me tell you about the situation in Israel. Uh, They have been taken captive again, uh, this time by the Babylonians and the Chaldeans. Uh, They were a world superpower, a big war machine, but they were only in control of of world kingdoms for about 70 years or so. While they were doing air conquering, the Persians were rising up, and the Persians came against the Babylonians and conquered them, and now the Jewish people are are, uh, under the authority of the Persians. And they had a king, one of the kings of Persia was a guy named Cyrus, and he... I believe he was led by the Lord. I don't believe he was a believer, but I believe God used him to start sending people back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem had been sacked. Um, The walls were down. The temple was down. The place was an entire mess. And Cyrus said, okay, we're going to send you back. We're going to let you go back to Jerusalem. They can rebuild the city. Uh, You can rebuild the temple. You can worship your God the way you want to worship your God. And Zerubbabel and Nehemiah went. Nehemiah rebuilt the city, rebuilt the walls, and Zerubbabel reinstituted the priesthood. So things were looking pretty good. Uh, God's people were back in in Judea. Uh, The temple was being built. They were being worshipped. The sacrifices were going on. Uh, But we need to bear in mind that Judah is still nothing more than a province of another superpower. And Persia operated the same way every other empire did. They, they uh, they, They were able to exist on the taxes of people. And with Persia, because they were expanding very rapidly, the taxes were higher than they had ever been before. So the administrators... Uh, were corrupt. The ones that weren't corrupt were relatively inept. They didn't really know what they were doing. There had been a recent famine by the time we get to Malachi. The poverty in Judea was devastating. And because of the famine, uh, there was no food. Uh, There was no way for people to, it was an agrarian culture, and they're supposed to grow their crops and that sort of thing. They had no way of doing that. So a lot of the Jewish people were selling themselves into slavery in order to have enough money to buy food. So added to this, the region now was occupied by a lot of people that were not Jewish, 
Uh, I mean, the Babylonians sent their people in to occupy the land. The Persians sent their people in. So they got this incredible multicultural mix in Judea where the Jews have gone back and they're trying to get things up and running again. And uh, on top of all that, most people believe that Judea was operating as a, a, uh, a sub-province of Samaria. So there was a lot of tension um, and there was a lot of cultural milieu that was going on. There was a lot of cultural pressure, pressure to conform to what was going on. And God's people were succumbing to that pressure. They were allowing the people around them to influence how they worship their God, how they practice their faith. So the, the, and, and they had this admiration for the Persians who were in charge, whether or not they were corrupt, whether or not they weren't corrupt, because those were the ones that had the money. They were the one percenters. So there was an aspiration to be like them, and that kind of began to permeate their meetings. So their meetings began taking on a different flavor and a different character. And as they made these compromises to bring people into their meetings, to proselytize them into their church, the, the worship began to get watered down. So money is short, the church is struggling, and the worst thing that has happened is that the people of Israel have adopted a casual attitude in their worship for God. Now, that, that's nothing new. The uh, I mean, isn't that the history of Israel? Uh, God calls them. Uh, they praise him. They fall into hard times. They fall into captivity. They cry out to God, uh, and God delivers them, and they praise him, and then they, they, they fall again. They keep on turning their back. They keep on watering down their worship. They keep on putting God on the back burner. And so here we are again at the end of 2,000 years of history. They've been taken captive a number of times. And it happens every time they turn their back on God. Every time they give him a secondary place. Every time they start looking at the gods around them and the people around them and start acting like them, they fall into captivity and they cry out. Well, they're in that backslidden state right here in Malachi. They have begun to fall away from God. Uh, the, the cultural... Uh, influences have permeated their worship. They're beginning to worship other gods. So God does what he always does. He sends a messenger. And the messenger is there to remind them of who he is. Not only who he is, but to remind him of who they are. And to remind them of the promises that God has given them. So that takes us to our first type of person. And that the, the, the one who falls under God's favor. And that starts in verse 1 of Malachi 1. And it starts out with this. This proclamation, this statement. This is why the book's here. The oracle of the word of the Lord. Now, I like the way they used Lord here. We talked a little bit last week about the number of different ways Lord shows up in the Old Testament. There's Yahweh. Uh, there's Elohim. Uh, but this is Yahweh. And right off this divinely inspired scripture uh, by the writer of this book, God makes this proclamation through him saying, this is the word of Yahweh. And it's a reminder that there are no other gods like, like him, that there is only one true God, 
They've got their eyes on other gods. They've got their eyes on other people. And God is calling them back and saying, remember, remember, I'm the God of all creation. So the word comes from Yahweh. And it goes to Israel by Malachi. Now, I love, I love the Malachi thing because Malachi's in there with the prophets. Uh, we don't think that's his name. The, the, the biblical scholars don't believe that there was actually a Malachi. Uh, the word means my messenger. Uh, and so we, we don't really know who wrote the book. It's the only book of the prophets that doesn't offer any background on who the writer is. He never identifies himself. A lot of people think it was Ezra. Uh, the, the writing style matches that of Ezra. So it may well have been. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that it doesn't really matter who wrote the book because whoever wrote the book is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's the word that God has given us. So the, we, we don't know the author. Maybe it's Ezra. And uh, if, if you understand the end of Malachi, you, you also understand that there is no prophetic-inspired scripture for 400 years after this book is written. Some people say God has gone silent for 400 years. They call it the silent 400 years. God wasn't silent. He was still working among his people. There were prophets, not major ones. Uh, he was still guiding his people. He was still watching over them. He was still sovereign over them. So God's not silent. But just we have no scripture for 400 years. So the book begins with this proclamation about who God is. And it, it's to Israel. Uh, and it starts with a dialogue. So the entire book is going to run through this dialogue between God and his people. And in verse 2, the first statement we see is, I have loved you. Now, I love this. And, you, you know, most of us are pretty comfortable with the English language. Amen? I've just seen if you guys are awake. <laughs> okay? But we could very easily misconstrue what this says. Because we know these people are in trouble. We know that they have fallen away from their father in heaven. And God starts out with what appears to be a past tense. You know, I love you. And, we, and, and, and again, if we don't understand the language, we could go, oh, there's a problem. And God has removed his love. But in the Hebrew, this is a perfect tense. And what that means, there is action, there is ongoing action, and the action will continue. So God's not saying, I used to love you, and something's gone wrong, and now that you've done these things that I told you not to do, I don't love you anymore. What God is actually saying is, I have loved you, I am loving you now, and I will love you forever. Now, uh, if we understand that, we also understand their situation, that their worship is not focused upon God. And we all think that if we take our eyes off God, if we do something he tells us not to do, that somehow he's going to remove his love from us. But God's love is predicated on his promise, not our behavior. So God is assuring his people, I know what you're doing. I know what's going on there, but I love you. I promised I would never leave you or forsake you. I promised I would love you for all time. And I love you now, and I will love you. We are going to work through this. And he says, says the Lord, and the thing about the you, and I love this too, it's plural. It's plural. It means all of them. It means every one of them. And again, 
we have this picture in our heads sometime that the rest of the body, these people are all fantastic. You guys all look great on Sunday morning. Everybody's worshiping and praying and reading their Bibles and everything. Why am I so messed up? God says, regardless of how you feel, I love you all. You're the people of God. Eventually what we're going to find out is we become the body of Christ. And there's no one person sitting here that doesn't call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as, as their Savior that isn't loved by God. A never-ending love that is constantly active. Doesn't fade because of what we've done, because it's about what he's done. Okay, so we have this. I've loved you, says the Lord, Yahweh again. And then there's the but. Have you ever had one of those discussions with somebody close to you? I love you, but. And you know the, the other boot is about to fall. <laughs> I love you, but you just did this. <laughs> I love you, but you always do that. I love you, but I can't forgive what you just did. And so when we see this but, we know that there's an exception coming. We know that there's a little bit of conflict here. We're seeing a little bit of tension. And if we were to linger there, our minds would wander into, oh, what is God going to do? Something's coming down the pike that these people are not going to like. But look what happens. He's got a surprise for us. You say, you all say, how have you loved us? It's a source of incredible tension. It is the people's response to God's love. You know what they did? They said, you say you love me, why'd you do that? You say you love me, God, why are we in this situation? God, what kind of love are you sharing with us here that would, would see us giving all of our money for taxes and, and being hungry and finding ourselves in circumstances that are trying and situations that we don't want to be in? If you really loved us, you would do something about this, God. You can feel the tension. You can feel the conflict. It's filled with irreverence. It's filled with challenge. It's filled with doubt. It's filled with a lack of trust in God. If you really loved me, I wouldn't be in this situation. And it is incredibly filled with evil thoughts and self-centeredness. There's no acknowledgement that God's got a plan for us. He's made promises for us. There's no acknowledgement of what God has done for them up until this point. It's all about, what are you doing for me now, God? And I don't like it. So, if I were God, I'd be sharpening my smiting stick. I'd go, bam, I'm done with you. Let me choose some other people. But God's made a promise. I mean, he started the whole thing out with, I love you and I'm going to love you. Look what he says. It's not Esau, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob. Now, Jacob and Esau were sons of Isaac. They're the beginning of the whole thing. Esau was the older brother. He was entitled to a double blessing compared to his younger brother, Jacob. But God blessed the younger brother. God favored the younger brother. He made a covenant with him. He promised the younger brother the land that the Jews are standing on as they challenge God. He not just promised it to him. 
He gave it to him supernaturally, miraculously. God has loved and loves Jacob. And the, the incredible thing is Jacob became Israel, became the nation of Israel. Jacob became the people that are standing there challenging God. God loves the ones that are confronting him, the ones that are questioning him, questioning his tactics. Now, what does that mean to us? I mean, we've got, we've got to absorb this. We're God's people now. We are the nation of Israel in a, in a figurative way of, of speaking. I don't want to get into all the politics. But we are God's people. God has promised to love us. If we've confessed, if we've repented, if we've received Jesus Christ as Savior, he loves us. And yes, from time to time, we have dropped the ball. We have struggled. We've done the wrong thing. We've made a bad decision. We've done something that was evil. But God loves us. And we're standing on ground that God has given us, the ground of our salvation. And God sometimes will remind us that we're saved, that we're one with his son, that his love pours out on us. And sometimes we need that alignment because we look around us and the situation seems a little bit overwhelming. And we wonder how we got there. And yes, sometimes we can be in a situation and blame God for it. And God doesn't smite us. He loves us through it. He doesn't abandon us. He's faithful to his promises. See, as we look at the Old Testament and we see this incredible pattern that rolls out in the life of Israel, of calling out to God, being delivered, turning their back, getting in the jam, calling out to him, being delivered, turning it back, getting in the jam. It's us. I've said it before, if you don't see yourself in the history of Israel, you're never going to understand the Old Testament the way it's meant to be understood. So when we look at how faithful God is to Israel, we know he can be faithful to us as well. When we look at how God fulfills the promises to Israel, we know that he will fulfill the promises to us as well. That's what it's like to experience God's favor. Now, there's another side that we need to understand because God has a, a wrath. Not popular to talk about today. I hear it all the time. You go to these seminars and articles on preaching and everything. Don't talk about God's wrath. Don't talk about sin. Talk about the good things. Okay? But here we have God's fury. Starting with verse 3, he says, but Esau I have hated. Oh! I gotta tell you something. A couple years ago, I mentioned during a sermon that God hated something, and I, I, I had a very adventurous Monday <laughs> after that sermon. Because I had people standing in my office and go, God doesn't hate anything. God is love. And, you know, and a lady standing there and saying, don't you understand that God is love and he doesn't hate anything? I said, well, God. And then she went, he just wants to give us all a hug. And you know what? There, there's, there's enough truth to that that it sounds good. But we, we have homogenized God. 
we made him this big fluffy character on a cloud that just looks down with us and said, oh, please choose me and don't do anything bad and I love you. And, you know, again, there's enough truth to that that we can embrace it, but we've got to be careful because there are consequences for rebelling against God and there, there are eternal consequences for those who reject him completely. So we have this, but Esau I have hated. Now, th- this is pretty unusual because if you look at the story of Jacob and Esau both of them are just rotten guys (laughs) I I mean uh, you know at at first Esau seems like the good guy he's a big burly hunter you know and Jacob is staying home making soup with his mom (laughs) and you know and uh, Jacob steals Esau's birthright Uh, we find out that Jacob is a manipulator he's a liar he's a cheater Um, he's self-centered uh, him and his mother are plotting against their father. There, there's all sorts of crazy things going on there. But God loves Jacob. Why? Well, because eventually Jacob repents. He turns towards God and he realizes that the things he's done haven't been very nice. Now, it, it, there's not an instant change over Jacob, but he realizes that he's on the right track. Jacob repents, and then we find out that Esau, he really is a rotten guy himself. You know, he goes off and he marries people that, that his mother and father have a problem with, and he, he has an evil heart, and, and he, is, he, he himself is manipulative, he's revengeful, uh, and Esau fathers a prideful, treacherous, evil, greedy, violent nation, while Jacob establishes a covenant with God and becomes the father of Israel. As far as we know, Esau never repents. And the evidence we see of his lack of repentance is in his descendants who become the nation of Edom just the other side of the Jordan from from Israel. God hates Esau. God hates evil. Now for those of you that are thinking about coming to visit me tomorrow, take a look in Deuteronomy 12, 31. Take a look in 16, 22 of Deuteronomy. God hates idolatry. Take a look in Psalms 5, 4 and 6. In Psalm 11, verse 5, God hates those who do evil. And if you want a list of things that God hates, it's not exhaustive, but we have it in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 through 19. Here are the things that it says God hates. Pride, they call it haughty eyes. Lying, murder, the taking of innocent blood. Evil plots, hearts that defies wicked plans. False witness, those who breathe out lies. It's not, God doesn't hate every lie that is told, although I don't think he likes it, but those who who immerse themselves in lies, those who live a lie. God hates troublemakers, and that is particularly people who sow discord among their brothers and sisters. We've seen those people. They're off in the corner saying, did you see what they just did? They, They shouldn't be doing that. Somebody needs to do something. So is division in the church. See, Esau's descendants were just like Esau. And God's fury was being poured out on Edom. They did all these things, so God has vented his fury, and and 
they're, they're suffering for it. It's not over, but he says, I have laid waste to his hill country, Esau, Edom, and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. So God levels his wrath on Edom, and he says, it'll never be anything. It'll be the habitat of jackals. That was 2,500 years ago. I was there three years ago in Edom. It's now the southern part of Jordan, okay? This is what it looks like. Look at the picture. There's nothing there. Oh, there's a little town here and there, but they struggle. There's no natural resources. There's no reason to live there. It's hard to grow anything. God is faithful to his promises. Well, that's good news for those who believe in him bad news for those who don't and depending on where you stand on that there's some more news God has future plans for everybody now those of us who believe in Christ we know that God has a plan for us amen but God has plans for it watch this verse 5 your own eyes shall see this and you shall say Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. It's an admonishment to those who have been neglecting their relationship with God. Now, he's talking to his people. He's saying, literally, when, uh, when you see this happen, un you'll understand that I'm the God of all creation. I'm not just the God of Israel. You're looking at these other gods. They're not really gods. There's only one true God. And when all creation sees his wrath being poured out, those who believe in him will see his glory. Now, if, if you've been witnessing to some unbelievers, you might hear things like, oh, that's not my God. You know, I've got a friend who tells me all the time, I don't have to go anywhere. He tells me I don't believe in him. And I keep on saying, he may not be your God now, but he will be your God at some point. And so there are people who believe that if they don't believe in God, they don't have to obey him. That if they don't believe in God, that he can't condemn them. That somehow they have to believe in him first before they can accept their own condemnation. That's not how it works. He is the God of all creation. He is the God of all people. He's not just the God of Israel. He's not just the God of the Judean people. He's the God of everybody. And when his wrath begins pouring out on those who reject him, those who believe in him will declare his glory. So everyone falls into two categories. They're not red and blue. They are favor or fury. And if you read verse 5 clear, clearly, you'll see that everyone has a future. Some will be the beneficiaries of his favor. Some will be the object of his fury. If you do the things he hates, you receive his fury. But wait a minute. <laughs> Haven't we all done something he hates? 
I mean, you look at that, that short list that I, you know, you, it's there in your notes. You can look up the, the passages later. I mean, we, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And all of us, whether we want to admit it or not, have sinned since we've been saved. So does God's fury fall upon us because we've sinned, because we've done the things he hates? Are we in trouble? Does God, is he some kind of whack-a-mole guy <laughs> that when the sin pops up in your life, he's going to beat it down until it doesn't come up anymore? Is, is he out to get his vengeance upon us? Is, is he demanding perfection from us? Is he demanding that we live our lives sin-free? No. No. See, we, we who call upon Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are not the object of his wrath and fury. If we have repented from our sins, if we believe in Christ as Savior, if we believe he's the only Son of God, then we understand that Jesus took upon the wrath of God, took it upon himself. He absorbed the wrath in our place so that we don't have to suffer through it. And Scripture tells us, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, tells us to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. 1 Thessalonians again, chapter 5, 9 and 10. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live in him. Jesus took on the wrath so that we don't have to. He died in our place so that we don't have to die. There are only two types of people. There are people who need Jesus and people who have Jesus. There are people who are graced with his favor and people who are doomed by by his wrath. And you see that everyone has a future, either in favor or fury. And the great news is it's not too late for anyone. God has a future for all of us, for those who believe, but those who have Jesus, Scripture tells us that it's not too late. The time for salvation is now. And if you doubt whether or not God's mad at you, you might become a victim of his fury. Remember this, none can take you from his hand. Nothing can separate you from his love. Those are the promises he's given us. You see, you see, we started out with God professing this eternal love for his people based on his promises based on the promises that he made to Israel and based on the fact that even as they stand there being unfaithful to him, they are being unfaithful to, to, to him. God's faith is never-ending. His faithfulness is never-ending. His, his love for us is never-ending. And it's not dependent on us. It's dependent on him and who he is. And the promise he's made for us, brothers and sisters, is he's gone to prepare a place for us. And it'll come back and take us there. And we can trust in that because God is faithful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you 
Lord, prepare our hearts now to sit at this communion table, Father, even as we meditate upon your faithfulness. Uh, Lord, let us just come before you. Uh, help us, Father, to confess and repent of those things that, that offend you. Uh, restore us into a right relationship with you, Father. But help us to, to embrace and understand the assurance of our salvation based on your promises, not our behavior. So we pray that your spirit would move among us now, Father, and draw us closer to you in these next few minutes. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.